0: Vladimir Putin reveals what he's trying to accomplish as Russia attempts to fracture Western democracies by interfering with political elections. Welcome everyone to Brief Before Impact. I am your host, Matt Parker. And today on episode number 21, we discuss the digital techniques that Russia uses to interfere with political elections what Vladimir Putin is trying to achieve with these efforts and what the US has to do to push back. The intent of today's episode it's to first drive or excuse me, first dive into how Russia specifically targets our electoral process and why the why behind it. And then we will pivot to what steps the US can make to deterring that kind of future interference. But before we jump into that, let's just take a quick ad break, then we'll be right back. All right, welcome back, everyone. We all remember 2016. Well, I remember the headlights and uh, the news talking about how Russia is interfering with our electoral uh, elections and our electoral process. Political interference—it's from exterior sources. It's been—it's got a long history. It's nothing new. Then that's true of both Western democracies and authoritarian regimes. Uh, that's just something they do in the international relations arena. Uh, now that's the environmental or excuse me, I should say the environment where political actors operate in. It's what actions kind of can put my country in a more favorable position. So I just want to emphasize the point that the history of interfering with other countries, uh, demo, you know, electoral process, whether it is a f- more familiar Western democracy or an authoritarian regime, uh, th- that's kind of old school to say the least. And so according to the Washington Post, it's it's old news that Russia tried to influence in 2016 presidential election. And not long after the election, The Obama administration imposed sanctions on Russia, including the expulsion of Russian intelligence operatives. And then FBI Director James Comey confirmed that there was an open investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election six months later. And Russian operatives were indicted in 2018. And eventually there was a report from Special Counsel Robert Mueller. And it came out that Russia used email leaks propaganda Social media, all to stoke societal divisions and undermine the integrity of the election process in the United States. And whenever I began digging into this issue of political interference, I came across a study done by in two thousand sixteen by Dove Levin, and Levin found that among nine hundred and thirty eight global elections examined, okay, these are elections across the world, the United States, and Russia it's as well as its predecessor Soviet Union had a combined involve themselves in one out of nine of those elections so 117 out of 938 elections around the world the United States and the Russia had involved themselves to some capacity in terms of an interf, you know interfering efforts and a majority of those efforts about 68 percent being through covert, rather than overt actions. Covert meaning n- not for the whole world to realize, hey, this is me doing you know, this over here, R- raving my Russian or American flag, and I'm interfering in your election. Rather, is trying to attempting to be more under, uh, more covert, I should say. Now, this study found that on average, an electoral intervention in favor of one side contesting the election will increase the vote share about 3%. Now, that is a large enough effect to have potentially changed the results in seven out of 14 U.S. presidential elections occurring after 1960. And according to the study, the U.S. intervened in 81 foreign elections between 1946 and 2000, while the Soviet Union, or Russia, intervened in 36. And that's another study in 2018 by Levin found that the electoral interventions determined in many cases the identity of the winner. It also found that this suggested evidence that the interventions increased the risk of democratic breakdown in these targeted states. So that is the overview of this political interference landscape for you to think about why we're going through these pieces of Russian political interference in the United States elections. The US as well as Russia have been interfering in other countries' elections for the last several decades and that's just a part of this process in foreign relations. So when you dive a bit into the study that I highlighted, being that US and Russia are both assessed to have interfered in all these political elections around the globe, as you can imagine, both techniques used to influence elections, as well as the intent behind the interference, that's changed, both as technologies have advanced and each of these countries have grown and expanded their power. So let's kind of dig into the weeds of how Russia executes an, inele- an election interference campaign. It's modern times into the 2000s. And I'm going to describe two of the following items. One is called a bot. The second is called a shill. So let me define both of these, and I'm going to tell you then how they're used. According to Gavin Phillips, writing for makeuseof.com, a bot is a fake social media account under the control of of an organization or government seeking to influence the online community. For instance, a Twitter bot set to retweet certain hashtags and phrases in such volumes that it amplifies the specific topic. Bots require volume for success on certain platforms, while at other times, only a few can begin to shape the direction of a conversation. And anyone can create a social media bot uh, using the computer language, Python. It's what uh, coders use to write software. Now, secondly, a shill. A shill is different. Shills are real people actively engaging in the shaping of an online discussion and opinion while receiving payment in exchange for their presence. So shills promote companies, promote governments, public figures, much more. And this is for personal profit essentially engaging in propaganda and depending on the organization or government shills can work in conjunction with large bot networks to create intense vocal online movements and while the combined efforts of shills and bots shape online opinion these efforts are increasingly affecting more than just social media users the practice is also known as astroturfing and that's where an organization and a government curate the conversation through regular members of the public. So let's focus on how Russian bots and shills and how they've been used against the U.S. in recent political elections. Russian bots and shills dominated talk in the run-up to the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Commentators and credits dedicated a huge amount of airtime and column inches discussing the role of Russian-backed bots and shills in influencing the discussion around certain topics. In fact, Robert Mueller, the special counsel who's investigating interference in the presidential election recently or I should say back then in 2016 indicted 13 US based Russians as a part of the suspect suspected Russian backed propaganda machine called the Internet Research Agency. And I'll get a little bit more into those details in a moment. The allegations of influence are far reaching. They range from simply creating American-sounding identities online to stealing the identities of U.S. citizens to baiting minority activists and so-called social justice warriors to creating Instagram groups such as, quote, the woke blacks to influence minority voting efforts. The point here is that these efforts to affect discord in the American political uh, electoral process is wide-ranging beyond just targeting a Republican or a Democratic candidate or their parties. Again, Gavin writes, and for the cries of foul play and unfair targeting, there is evidence that conservatives retweeted Russian trolls about 31 times more than their liberals and produced uh, 36 times more tweets. Furthermore, Twitter maintains that their bot purge, you know, try to get rid of all these Russian bots, it's apolitical and that they enforce, you know, uh, site-wide rules without political bias, according to Twitter. That's not to say that bot shields, astroturfing is just the sole problem of conservative figures. Back as far as 2007, campaign staffers for Clinton were anonymously boosting pro-Hillary sites, while during the 2016 presidential debates, the Clinton campaign was the subject of hundreds of thousands of automated bot tweets. So keep this in mind as you are using your social media accounts, that it is not just your friends and your neighbors who, who are engaging in polite or not polite political discussion online. This actually might be an attempt by a specific actor to sow discord in American society. So starting in 2014, Russia, they created this troll farm called the Internet Research Agency. And it began promoting propaganda and to target American voters with polarizing messaging. And in many ways that agency acted kind of like a, an internet marketer. They would use the same tools, the same techniques, very common to those digital advertising campaigns. And according to McKelly and Elise Samuels of the Washington Post, the Russian military intelligence, or GRU, no, they're short, they're like our equivalent of the United States CIA, the GRU is pushing propaganda into the media landscape through what researchers refer to as narrative laundering. So they planted the seed of a story attempting to have it picked up or distributed by larger and larger media outlets. They would promote these stories through fake personas on social media, made-up think tanks, alternative news outlets. And the GRU also used a hack-and-leak strategy, whereby Russian operatives hacked into entities like the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's campaign, and they would leak information to you know, WikiLeaks or journalists the content of those leaks were widely reported on we all remember that ultimately becoming it was a major national narrative of the 2016 election the bottom line is russian operatives weaponized social media using services and techniques that were actually designed by companies for advertisers they co-opted traditional media by sharing hacked information and spreading sensationalized stories through fake online personas and they updated long-standing propaganda techniques with inauthentic behavior on social media and the traditional media to reach voters in the digital era. Now, Facebook, Google, Twitter, they say they've all taken steps to combat disinformation operations and build more transparency in political advertising on their platforms. And just keep this in mind, the reason this is such a challenge particularly in the United States and other Western democracies is because transparency is a, a pillar of our democracy and our process to electing people to political power, knowing what individuals stand for, what they've said in the past, what they've done in the past. All those things are key. And the conversation around political debate happens between not just elected officials, but just normal citizens. All that is, makes America and other Western democracies so fantastic, however, it also makes us very vulnerable to exploitation by a disinterested or a malevolent actor. So now that we've laid out how Russia, the efforts that Russia has executed to disrupt the American political process, let's kind of dig into the why and the man behind that why of they did it, Vladimir Putin. And in a single word. Word. I describe what Putin is trying to achieve by allowing Russia's intelligence agencies to aggressively attack the political process of the Western democracies. There's just one word. It's destabilize. To destabilize. And I'm really going to dissect that effort to destabilize for the next few minutes. According to Rachel Rizzo and Adam Tordosky writing for Small Wars Journal, how exactly Russia carries out. This policy of fracturing the West. There was a news report from the Center of Strategic and International Studies on the Kremlin's influence uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, explaining that Russia seeks to advance its own geostrategic objectives in part by weakening the internal cohesion of societies and strengthening the perception of the dysfunction of the West. Well, let me just get a little bit more into this point, weakening the internal cohesion of societies and then strengthening the perception of dysfunction in the West, P- Putin wants America and its allies, and the messiness of democracy, to look so dysfunctional that re- that countries in his region of influence pull away from Western-style democracies and more towards authoritarian type of regimes. Putin does this in order to have more deeper relationships with these countries for benefit of both military and economic benefits. That's why he attempts to cause this uh, internal cohesion or weaken that internal cohesion and create this disruptive type of environment in our own country. It's in order so he can influence other countries to pull away from that style of democracy and governments and pull more towards his direction so his country can benefit both militarily and economically. Now again, Rizzo and Twardowski continue by shaping the decision-making apparatus of certain countries through the exploitation of weak state institutions like weak governance and the identification of allies sympathetic to Russian interest. Moscow believes it achieves more than it could through traditional military campaigns and at a much lower cost. So Putin has taken this well-known playbook, which includes disinformation campaigns, designed to discredit Western institutions and sow doubts about official narratives of Russian behavior, and found new ways to apply it in the West. And in fact, through the use of hybrid rather than conventional tactics, Putin has proven that he can create just as much chaos by sending an armed battalion into NATO territory. By waging this underhanded form of aggression, recent history has shown that Putin can count on Western response that underestimates Russia's resolve to assert its interest. And I'm really emphasizing this next point. Russia's security, and that's which is Putin's nexus of his decision making, is Russia's security. And it depends not on rolling tanks across the borders in the NATO alliance, but instead on fracturing the West and paralyzing decision making among Western leaders. What is clear, however, is that Russia's intent on honing sophisticated capabilities in the cyber and information domains and to sow divisions in the West and fracture the unity of this transatlantic alliance. Transatlantic alliance between, you know, European Union, NATO, and the United States. So we've kind of dissected here what Putin really wants. He he wants Russia to be a major player in the world once again. And in order to do that, he's gotta push back against the influence of the United States, the the strength and military capacity of the NATO alliance. He wants to be able to push back and expand his influence on his you know, his region, particularly in, in Eastern and Central Europe. And again, like I mentioned, he's doing this for military and economic purposes. Uh, Gerd Cohen, who's a German commentator and historian, he's got a great description of understanding Putin's mentality, particularly about since the fall of the Soviet Union. And he says it's not about Putin wanting to reestablish the Soviet Union. He didn't shed a tear for socialism or socialist internationalism. Quite the opposite is the case. He called the collapse of the Soviet Union the biggest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And for him, it only meant a weaker Russia. And that's the bottom line here. Whenever we read about any type of efforts that Russia is attempting against Europe or the United States, it's all about bringing Russia back to this, the forefront of the global stage. There was a time when the Soviet Union and the United States were the two global superpowers. And we were in a Cold War for uh, several decades, battling in those different spaces. And eventually in 91, the Soviet Union collapsed. And Putin grew up in this environment. And he is. That's who he is as an individual is believing that Russia needs, again, hold that, that place on the global stage as a, as a strong power. And he's going about reestablishing Russia in very aggressive ways. And oftentimes, you know, when a nation state is acting kind of this an overt, aggressive fashion to an adversary, it's often because the reaction to a domestic issue. You know, almost an effort to distract its population from an internal Tension. You've heard me talk about this, for example, in the context of China, uh, China and Taiwan. In episode 14, you can hear how China does this as well in that specific context. And I'm going to give you an example of the economics for Russia currently. Like all countries, the pandemic negatively affected uh, Russia's economy. And according to Andrei Semenov, he's writing for the Wilson Center, the current economic downturn is different. It is structural protracted and unfolding against the backdrop of this global pandemic, which limits the efficacy of government's instruments in handling the crisis. Now, the simultaneous contraction of supply and demand in the economy, coupled with the oil price shock in the spring of 2020, it's multiple, created multiple economic consequences for citizens. And in Russia's case, the pandemic exacerbated the economy's Pre-existing problems, that structural dependence on hydrocarbon exports met the collapse in the global oil trade in the spring of 2020, and it severely reduced revenues. Now, so you understand about a little bit more Russia's economy. They are the world's second largest oil producer. Now, that being said, Russia is much less dependent on oil than many believe. Uh, revenues from oil exports, including oil products, make about 21% of their GDP. And I want to give you an example of Russia's leverage with its energy exports, and this is just in the context of Europe, all right? So the European Union has been very vocal about how Russia's treated an opposition leader. Uh, His name's Alexei Navalny. This guy is the antithesis of Vladimir Putin, and he's been opposing uh, Putin for years, and Putin has gone after him quite aggressively, actually having his Russia's intelligence agents poison Navalny with a nerve agent called Novichok and this almost killed Navalny. He had to be flown to Germany just to uh, get the right treatment. While he was being treated in Germany for this poisoning, Russia accused him of a court found him guilty of embezzling a French company and then failing to report all while he was you know recovering from this poisoning. Now the European court of human rights, they've condemned this guilty verdict. They they say that's that's wrong that Russia said this about Navalny. Here now, here's the problem. So I'm going to set this up. The EU will say these kind of things and, and condemn Russia for finding Navalny guilty because they really see this as just targeting a political opponent of Putin. So they'll say that out loud. Russia's foreign minister, his name Sergey Lavrov, he has threatened to break off relations with the European Union if the European Union imposes sanctions that quote pose risk for our economy including the most sensitive areas so eu is pushing back against russia's hum- human right violations poisoning of this political opponent they're doing that you know on the global stage through comments that they're making russia then turns says if you impose sanctions European Union You're gonna have we're gonna break off relations with you entirely Okay, so they're kind of putting the European Union's feet to the fire the European Union inevitably Didn't impose these far wider sanctions now Let's dive into really why that happened because there's a second issue tied to this idea this problem The Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. This is a pipeline that just delivers Russian gas to Germany, okay? It's about 94 maybe 95 percent completed. It's almost done And what it will effectively do is it will deepen um, Russia's influence on Germany and it will weaken the country of Ukraine. And both of those ideas are very unpopular within the European Union as a whole. But here's where Germany pipes up. Germany insists that this issue can be kept separate from the Navalny case or human rights concerns or cyber hacking Germany says, ah, this pipeline that really benefits us, ah, that's kind of separate of all these other th- problems that we have. And this is the issue with, with Europe, Russia, and the United States, is you have to understand, when we see in the news, that political interference of an election, social media manipulation, etc., that appears just to be this uh, meddling into other countries' affairs, really what it's always trying to do is push and pull the levers of power and and money. And I'm giving you one example of this this gas pipeline that benefits Russia and Germany tremendously. And the European Union doesn't like that as a, a trading block, but Germany, one of the more powerful countries in the European Union, says this is okay and we're going to overlook these other issues that Russia continues to have, cyber hacking, poisoning a political opponent, etc, because they benefit so much from this one pipeline. That is the Biggest challenge with dealing with Russia is how do you push back against these things your country needs, like gas, for example, and still discourage, you know, political interference. You've got Germany, one of the strongest countries in the European Union, who wants this gas pipeline coming from Russia, but they're also condemning out loud, like, oh, wagging their finger at Russia to stop, you know, interfering with political elections and stop trying to hack our what the equivalent of Germany's Congress. But we're going to let this pipeline keep rolling through because it benefits us. And that's the, that's the challenge of a democracy and the democratic system, especially as a trading block, European union, the United States has a tremendous influence over that, over the European union. And then how do we, as a set of individual citizens and American citizens vote for policymakers who will push back against Russia from interfering with our own elections while still making the deals that we may need and for our you know our economic or our economy to continue forward or our relationships with Europe Europe to grow and be enhanced and this is a challenge so when we just think about any future news reports of election interference please keep in mind one the United States does this just as much as Russia does two, there's more at play here than just this one election or this one candidate, Democratic Party versus Republican Party. It's far deeper than that. There's always more implications to just that surface level reporting that you'll see in the news. So with that analysis of Russia and Putin's motivations and his intent, let's pivot to our most likely and most dangerous courses of action. These are the courses of action that Russia will take in the future. Regarding specifically political interference, and this is as Russia will attempt to expand its influence and position itself as a great power in the world, the most likely course of action for Russia is it will continue to test the United States and its allies via cybersecurity hacks, election interference, and social media manipulation. And these attacks, they're going to become more frequent as artificial intelligence and technologies like 5g fully become mainstream you've heard me talk in previous episodes whenever you get into you're about to ambush your enemy what's the weapon you use to initiate that gunfight it's always your most devastating I believe that the most the next big conflict to be kicked off is going to be initiated with some type of cyber attack, whether it's via artificial intelligence or 5G, these are going to make it more possible. We won't see countries fighting each other in the spaces of conventional warfare tactics initially. It'll be primarily fought in cyber warfare, followed on by conventional attacks. So that is what most Russia will most likely do in the future moving forward. Now, the most dangerous course of action regarding Russia and interfering with American politics is that the United States fails to... You harmonize a national approach to cybersecurity because this isn't just a government issue or a private sector issue. We've seen both, where government entities in the United States as well as private companies have been attacked by, uh, Rus- by Russian, Chinese, North Korean hackers. This has to be harmonized across the board, and there has to be an an interlink between the private sector and the government so that we can defend. Kind of a whole of government approach against these cyber cyber attacks. So if we fail to do this, that's be a most dangerous course of action. Or if the United States fails to, you know, deconflict the different budgets that funds uh, specific whether it's the NSA or other type of uh, intelligence agencies. There needs to be an individual at the White House who's essentially director of cybersecurity because this is the growing threat it's becoming. And if the United States fails to you know, enhance and bolster our networks from attacks, that will be the most dangerous course of action that we could take as a country. And again, just to emphasize the points I made in the past, the next big conflict will be kicked off by some, in my opinion and view, by some type of cyber attack, which is why we have to be so vigilant. So in terms of concluding thoughts, moving forward, what the United States has to do, we the first, the United States has to have... No ambiguous language on what we believe for election interference. It has to be clear cut. We either stand for this or we don't stand for that. Secondly, just reiterating those comments from before, the United States has to improve our our cybersecurity defenses. We have to protect our our infrastructure, our electric grids, and so forth. We have to enhance that, that security. And then third and lastly, whenever electoral interference happens, the United States has to impose immediately some type of sanction on that country. It has to be almost automatic, and there can't be a, a debate about whether it should happen or not. That way, we have one more tool of deterrence against these types of attacks in the future. I think, really, the implications for American strategy are going to be clear. The statecraft we have to employ w- against Russia has to first, we have to stabilize this relationship. At the t- Whenever I'm recording this episode, so it's Sunday, June 13th. Uh, President Biden will be meeting very soon with Vladimir Putin. That relationship between our two countries just has to be stabilized. Let's start there. And it has to be stabilized in order to reduce this Russian behavior, this problematic Russian behavior, and then in the future allow the United States to better manage these conflicts. The conflicts between our two countries, they're not going anywhere. They've been around for a long time. We have to be in a position as a country to manage them more effectively without them throwing our whole country into a completely tilt you remember the 2016 election it went on for three years talking about russian interference which is you know with the uh, trump administration now russian interference happened but that alignment with the trump administration nah, that didn't there's no evidence for it so that took us on a three-year rabbit hole that was a pretty big example of asymmetrical warfare when the weaker power versus the stronger power russia versus the united states Russia throws in a social media manipulation and throws our whole electoral process uh, off, off track. So that can't happen in the future. We have to be in a better position to manage that relationship and manage those conflicts moving forward. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I really love reading into these types of issues of geopolitics and the strategy between more authoritarian type regimes like Russia led by Vladimir Putin versus the United States in the West. And I certainly hope you're picking up what I'm putting down. Follow me on Instagram at Brief Before Impact. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact. If you like today's podcast, please rate and review us on the app you listened on. Feel free to engage with us on social media. You can interact with us on Instagram. Follow us at Brief Before Impact, all one word. Any views or opinions represented in today's podcast are personal and belong solely to Matt Parker and Brief Before Impact podcast. All content we provide is of our opinion and is not attended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.